is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. And I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. We're having a hard time getting everybody vaccinated. Many reasons why people are hesitant. We've talked a lot about those already. So what possibly will help increase the vaccination rates? Do you just need to force people to get it? The pandemic has left lots of people struggling to put enough food on the table. We'll get into What's being done about it? More people died of drug overdoses last year compared to 2019. Pandemic was uh, one of the factors. Let's start with improving vaccination rates and what local governments can do about it. With us is Sheila Kuhl, a Los Angeles County supervisor. Sheila, we saw a story about a woman who had two relatives who died from COVID and she still refuses to get vaccinated. That's the problem, isn't it? Well, it's also probably not the truth, really. You know, it's kind of like, when people don't want to vote for something in any one of the uh, houses that I've been in, mm-hmm. they essentially say, oh, I need more time to read the materials. Right. Yeah. When we all got it at the same time, everybody else has read it. You know, it's just an excuse. I honestly, I'm a, a really befuddled about why people really don't want to get vaccinated. But we've gotten a lot of information from public health uh, and their outreach about people saying, well, I'm not I'm still not sure about it. You know, it's like a temporary approval. And it's like, what is it about half the people in L.A. County have gotten this vaccine? What, what other information do you know? All the people dying, all the people going into hospital and ninety nine point nine percent of all the people testing positive are unvaccinated. I don't know what else people need to know. Yes. Yeah, so, so what do you do when presented with that kind of a situation? Right. Because if all the info's out there and millions and millions of people have gotten the shots and haven't grown tails or fallen over, um, what do you do to further convince somebody or are they just not ever going to get there? Well, I don't know. I mean, people ask me the same thing about trying to get homeless people to go into shelter. And, you know, there are some that say I don't want to go in because I might get sick. I don't want to go in because I can't take my dog. And what we do is we just keep talking with them, try to solve the problem, make them feel better about it and go do something that's right for them to do. It's really the same with vaccinations. Everyone ought to get vaccinated. Um, I mean, it's kind of like when I was little, my dad taught me a saying, which was, your right to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. (laughs) And that's really what they're doing. And the reason I refer to them as selfish in the Times this morning, because it's kind of like fine for you to say, I'm not so sure, but you are endangering everyone around you because you could be carrying it, you could be spreading it. And this variant is virulent, you know. So that inevitably leads to the, the question, is there a way? Well, first of all, should it be mandatory? And is there a way somehow in the, in, the, in the name of public safety to make it mandatory, with the exceptions, obviously, of people who have medical conditions, that sort of thing? Well, I think people are very reluctant to make it mandatory uh, in the county because most of the services we provide are services to which you actually have a right. Let's say you want a marriage license. I'm not going to say you can't come in and get one uh, unless you're vaccinated, unless I give you an alternative, like every Tuesday having a drive-through service, whatever, like we do with food giveaways, where if you're unvaccinated, you can still get a marriage license, you know, if you provide an alternative. 
But I have to say, when you have public services, it's very difficult for us to say we want to mandate it, which is why we're put in this. We'll send a mobile vaccination clinic to your block. We'll go door to door. You know, we'll do anything. Please get vaccinated. But we're not making it mandatory. Sheila Kuehl, Los Angeles County Supervisor and representing the 3rd District. With so many people losing jobs and struggling financially during the pandemic, sacrifices have had to be made. That has sometimes meant people going with less food. Food insecurity is a big problem still across the country. KYW's Matt Leon with Lori Jones, the CEO of Phil Abundance, a nonprofit working to end hunger in the Philadelphia area, explaining her thoughts on what can be done to solve the problem. So think back to the last time we had a challenging economic environment in our country, not even nearly as challenging as we saw with the economic crisis and pandemic. Um, But back in 2008, um, there obviously were really challenges around housing and funding and and almost a recession for our folks. It took 10 years for this country to return to pre-2008 food insecurity rates. 10 years. And that was a big pandemic. I mean, sorry, that was a big economic crisis, but clearly not even didn't scratch the surface of what we experienced over the last year and a half. And so to answer where we are now, um, there definitely has been some optimism. You know, think about it. Folks are feeling very liberated. Um, There's a vaccine now against COVID, but as we know, there's no vaccine against hunger. And so people saw over the last year and a half, um, we saw longer lines. We saw the the need for people who are food insecure jump by 60%, 60% in our region and across the country. 40% of those people were newly food insecure. Um, and so food banks like Phil Abundance and all of our partners um, definitely stepped up. We doubled our amount of food distribution. We quadrupled what we spent on, on food to get it out to people in need. Um, the reality, though, Matt, is that right now things are getting a little bit better with the support that's coming in from the federal government. And so the supplemental funds that have been provided are definitely helpful for the people that we serve. But we know for them to get out of the hole that they got into through the pandemic and economic crisis is going to take several years. And uh, there are things I want to talk about government programs, specifically the tax credit, but I want to get to that in a moment. But I'm curious, I imagine, and if I remember correctly from previous conversations with other folks at Phil Abundance, you guys had a surge of donations when, you know, as much as there are a lot of people hurting, there are a lot of people that want to help. As things, quote unquote, get back to normal, and normal is a term that is different for everybody, you're exactly right. If you've, you've talked to our folks before, so you know, the reality is what we experienced at Phil Abundance and really food banks across the country was an outpouring of love and support from neighbors across the country. We saw children empty their, their piggy banks and say, more people need food, spend this $5 to help our neighbors in need. Um, we saw folks that signed over um, their stimulus checks or the EBT statements because while they needed help, they realized that their neighbors needed it more. And so we did see kind of record numbers of people giving small and large amounts to fill abundance and, and, and food banks across the country. That definitely has subsided. I think as the world is open, is open back up, people have been reminded that there's so many other charities that also deserve our support. And so we are seeing some of the support that comes um, to, that came to food banks over the last year definitely subsiding. Um, that said, as, as I mentioned to you a little bit earlier, um, there definitely is still this increased need. So we anticipate having to operate at this heightened level um, that we've operated at for the last 15 months, year and a half for the year, for several years to come. And so we actually are redoubling our fundraising efforts and looking to get additional support and diversify that support so we can meet that need. Over the last 15, 16 months, have you guys developed programs that were done 
on an, you know, for lack of a better term, an emergency basis because of the situations, but that worked really well and might be sticking around. I know one thing that jumps in my mind when I think you guys, I know, had no touch uh, uh, pickup services where you would have like a donation center set up and people didn't have to get out of their car, just open the trunk and you guys would put it in. Will stuff like that stick around? Are there other things that out of necessity you, you may have done, but you kind of learned, you know what, this maybe works better or, or could be a, a good tool for our toolbox, even when things settle down. Um, absolutely. And one of the things we found is, as you know, is everybody had to operate differently with CDC guidelines and requirements and no contact delivery, needing to make sure that people were wearing masks and people were safe and there were um, people were distanced and social distancing and all that. We definitely had to operate differently. Um, so one way that you, you mentioned uh, last spring and summer, we operated what we called a trunk to truck. <laughs> I'm sorry, truck to trunk operation where folks would drive up, pop their trunk, and we were able to put boxes of food, dairy, meats, produce, et cetera, right in there for them. They could drive off safe, no contact. Um, The other thing we did during COVID, um, we have a a very significant senior um, food delivery program. So we provide produce, dry goods to seniors on a monthly basis. Pre-COVID, seniors, probably with help from their family members or folks in their community, would come and pick up those food boxes. Well, during COVID, we remember our seniors, especially, we were especially encouraging to stay home. And so we shifted with our agency partners to doing home delivery of those of those produce, dry goods, et cetera. Um, so that's something we did differently. And as we did this, and actually I did some, some deliveries one day and I said, hey, these are not such light boxes. I can't imagine my mother, who's a senior citizen, kind of carrying a box that big. Maybe we should keep this delivery, um, this delivery model. Um, and so what we have done, one of the ways we innovated this past year is we started not just providing those kind of ingredients, dry goods, produce. We added to that meals. And so I'm actually sitting right now in one of our brand new facilities at Phil Abundance Community Kitchen, where for 20 years we've operated a uh, culinary arts training program. Over the last year, we've pushed our catering operation to really a meal production operation. And we are producing 7,000 meals a week. And some of those meals are going out to seniors and being delivered to seniors. Um, over the course of the last year, we did a program where we pr- pr- um, provided these meals to, to out-of-work food workers. So you know how the restaurant industry was was devastated. So we provided them with produce as we often do, but we also provided them with with, um, prepared meals. So very long way of saying among the innovations is that we realized that particularly for certain populations that were vulnerable, delivering to them made sense. And part of how we innovated was used a new facility we have um, to provide healthy meals to seniors that have them delivered to their homes. Coming up after a short break, did the pandemic lead to more drug overdose deaths? 93,000 people last year in the U.S. died of drug overdoses. That's nearly 30% higher than in 2019. One major change between the years, the pandemic. Dr. Sharon Levy, director of the Adolescent Substance Abuse and Addiction Program at Boston Children's Hospital. Dr. Nora Volkow is director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse within the NIH. Uh, Dr. Volkow, let's start with you. Connection with the pandemic? Yes, indeed. And there are three major factors that actually contributed to the very sharp rise in mortality from overdoses. One of them was the stress and uncertainty that occurred with a pandemic, which we know is associated with increased drug use and with relapse. The second one was uh, the resources that existed to provide support for people that actually were, um, that had opioid use disorder were curtailed by the need to use that personnel to take care of patients with covid and finally, we see a, an, um, a, a distribution of uh, a market with much higher risk drugs 
um, that is driven in part by the frequency with which fentanyl is now being available in most communities and to the combination of stimulants with fentanyl. So the drugs that are now available and that were accelerated during the pandemic are much riskier than the drugs that people were used to before. So they are dying. Uh, the risk of dying is much higher. Dr. Levy, I think about, you know, a couple of groups of people. Number one, those who are already using and then pandemic stress or isolation leads you to, to keep on going. And then maybe those who had gotten sober for a while, uh, gotten off drugs, gotten help. But then it was so bad for such a long time that they fell back in. Yeah, that's exactly what we're seeing. So uh, for people who have uh, used drugs as a means of coping with stress, of coping with um, problems, of of uh, dealing with anxiety and hard times, the pandemic was was very, very challenging. Um, and as Dr. Volkow said, um, just as those problems increased the capacity to take care of those people, which is already stretched pretty thin, even in the best of times, um, got stretched uh, even thinner. And at the same time, um, you know, one of the things that uh, we tell people who use drugs is is not to use alone, because um, the, if they do overdose, they're less likely to have somebody around uh, who might be able to uh, rescue them if they're uh, isolated. So all of those factors, I think, exactly are what's contributing. So, Dr. Volkow, now that the pandemic, at least in some parts of the country, seems to be tapering off, but not in others, of course, but in some parts, do you expect to to see a leveling off of uh, overdose issues? I think that, yes, and perhaps it's my wishful thinking, but one of the factors that is likely to make things better is the fact that our society is opening up. So we're providing a so social infrastructure that is so necessary for our well-being, but also importantly, particularly important for people that are actually trying to achieve sobriety or stay in recovery. That's one also as we're in better control of the uh, health crisis of hospitalizations and deaths from COVID. Uh, many of the healthcare providers that were involved with that crisis can now start to pay attention and provide support for people that have an opioid use disorder. And finally, I think that as we recognize that we can be active in controlling a pandemic as severe as it was with COVID, we can learn from those lessons and apply it towards the opioid crisis. So I, I guess because it's my hope that things will get better, but that's what I would basically predict, that we will start to see, um, if not a leveling off, but not the, the, the fast increases. Of course, we would like to see a reduction in overdose mortality. We will see what happens. The last point on taking what we learned during this and applying it, what does that look like to you? First of all, the commitment of resources that are necessary to accelerate the tools. I mean, we, we got vaccines because of massive investments of science and, and, and budgets, um, of um, partnerships between multiple agencies and industry. And the same thing needs to apply, uh, be applied for um, the opioid use disorder. And finally, the infrastructure that allows the implementation of those evidence-based interventions needs to be there. So we know that we have the vaccines. Now we have the challenge is to vaccinate everybody. The same thing, we have treatments for opioid use disorder. The challenge is that they are not being given to patients and patients are not taking them. We're not giving them the support that they need or many of them are rejecting them because of misunderstanding and stigma. So we need to address those three issues, just like we've addressed them for COVID.
And Dr. Levy, do you have uh, optimism that some of the things that we've learned perhaps from dealing with the pandemic and getting the vaccines up and running pretty quickly, some of that can be transferred over when it comes to trying to deal with the issue of uh, drug overdoses? You know, I, I think what we saw with uh, in responding to COVID is that massive investment worked. Um, and, uh, you know, that uh, as a general principle, I, you know, I think uh, we can apply it to the problem of opioid overdose as well. So even before the pandemic, uh, we are stretched pretty thin when it comes to uh, medical providers, addiction medicine and addiction psychiatry providers, as well as counselors, uh, particularly counselors who can counsel people who have substance use disorders. We, we really if we want to make this better. We really need to increase the workforce. Uh, broadly speaking, we need to make sure it's a representative workforce. And I think that there are things that we learned in COVID that we could apply here, just as Dr. Volkow said, um, we can make the investments because uh, they work. How much of a problem is overprescribing still or is that better? And now we've just got to stop fentanyl from coming in from all over the place in, in tiny amounts because we know what even a tiny amount can do to somebody. It's still a problem, and it is actually quite heterogeneous. We have seen a decrease in overall prescription of opioids for patients uh, with pain, but we also see in many instances prescriptions continuing when they are not justified. And at the same time, the other tragic side is that we're seeing patients who need a prescription opioids for managing their pain being left hanging with no support for their, their treatment, and severe pain can be devastating. So in those instances, if you do not provide the support, they'll go into the black market and they will get opioids because severe pain cannot be tolerated. And, and so we are, we are seeing that, the, that it's far from being uh, controlled, that notion, or coming up with solutions to address the needs of patients with pain. And so this is a priority area at NIH for research to develop uh, therapeutic interventions that are effective for managing severe pain and that are not addictive. Dr. Nora Volkow, Director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse within the NIH, and Dr. Sharon Levy, Adolescent Substance Abuse and Addiction Program, Boston Children's Hospital. No matter what, it's going to be almost impossible to reach anything close to 100% of the people vaccinated, and we, we discussed that a bit earlier. Can we blame the young people? A new study from UC San Francisco shows a quarter of young adults between 18 and 25 in the U.S. probably or definitely will not get vaccinated against COVID. The study says this reluctance threatens the health of older people who are not vaccinated and could lead to more problematic variants. You can find this Odyssey original at the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. 